Hello all, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever you are watching this podcast. I am coming to you from the dungeon at York University, which is where I call where my office is. Um, and because my office is in the basement of this building that's attached to like four other buildings. And to get there, you have to kind of cross through a bunch of buildings. Anyways, the good thing about it is that it's quite peaceful and very quiet. And there's a little bit of a window, although you can't see it here. Um, and so I would like to say welcome and hello to the Goddess Project episode on the Horned Goddess. Today, we're going to talk about the Horned Goddess and even the Horned God. We're talking about we're going to talk about horns altogether, which is going to be really fun. And um, if you didn't see my little episode on <laughs> Instagram, then perhaps I should review that I was doing my little pigtails today, which I always think about like as cute kind of Leia, uh, if you're into Star Wars kind of pigtails, although they're not exactly like that. Uh, but I was doing them today in the mirror and I thought, you know, I'm fixing my horns because I've been looking at so many horned women and horned gods. And then, of course, the horned statue in New York City, which is the, the topic for today. And uh, I thought to myself, oh, my God, these are horns. Uh, and so I'm going to be calling them horns from now on. Just a uh, fair warning. So if you're new to this podcast and this is the very first time that you're watching or listening to me, welcome. My name is Dr. Carla Ionescu. Um, and this podcast and the Goddess Project is really um, a fun attempt on my part to have conversations about all things gods and goddesses, particularly around the divine feminine. And it's really my escape in the sense that I can have conversations with people, with all of you, and talk about all the things that I would love to talk about in my classes, but we don't always have time. And so this is very informal. It is unedited. Um, it's just me. Um, and if you're watching it on YouTube, I sometimes have slides. Like today, I'll have slides with different images uh, because as some of you who follow me know I'm a visual learner, so I like images. But if you're listening, that's fine, because we will describe the images and we will talk about them. So uh, that's also fine. Um, so without further ado, let me share my slides with you guys. And let's begin talking about the Horned Goddess. Now, I am titling this episode, The Horned Goddess, even though we're going to talk about horned gods and goddesses. But I think that for so long, we have been used to a horned god. And for so long, we've talked about um, antlered gods. I don't know that we've spent as much time talking about antlered goddesses. And so I wanted to draw that attention to the fact that there are numerous horned goddesses. And that actually, after a while, especially in the last thousand years or so, the horns, like, divinities with horns begin to blend you know gender and so because of their symbolism as sort of nature divinities and wildness wilderness divinities they really their gender becomes a bit irrelevant um and so i think that it's really important to talk about them both separately and then eventually together and most importantly um we need to talk about the goddess uh, statue in New York City. Now, I will talk about her in detail 
as I, so I'm going to take you through this little path through history of uh, horned divinities. And then we'll get to the very end where we'll talk about the exhibition itself. But I wanted to share with you um, some of the posts that really startled me and that really began this search for me um, into the horned goddess. And so the goddess, the gold statue goddess, let's say, although I don't know that Shahiza Sikander actually calls her a goddess. So Shahiza Sikander has an exhibition in New York City in Madison Square Park. And this exhibition, as we'll see, has three pieces to it. But the pieces are very similar, and they are basically this gold female figure with horned hair, which reminds me of these pigtails, right? Horned hair, but her hair is, it kind of comes out in braids and it twists around. So there's a there's a very clear ram kind of figure or ram symbolism happening here. And she's got no real hands and legs. She's got like these kind of tentacly hands and legs or viney hands and legs. Um, and she's really stunning. And around her neck, she wears... Um, a similar, um, oh, what's the word for it? Sorry, guys, the, the, name, the word's not coming for me. Um, but um, Ruth Ginsburg wore a thing around her neck. Oh, my goodness. A lace collar. That's what it is. It's a lace collar. <laughs> so uh, Justice Ginsburg wore a, a lace collar. And so this statue, that's very unique to her. And so this statue wears the exact same uh, collar, and it's it's sort of a shout out uh, by Sikander to uh, Justice Ginsburg. Anyways, when I actually did not know about this statue until I was on Twitter one day, and I started seeing all this statue bashing, and so some of the tweets, for example, that are that came up are like, "This is a bizarre bizarre resemblance to satanic imagery of the statue." New York has put an androgynous baphomet with tentacles digging into its own torso on top of the courthouse in order to better reflect 21st century social mores. Other articles by Fox News, you won't be surprised. Satanic golden Medusa abortion statue outside New York City courthouse ruthlessly mocked as a monstrosity. Um, how the satanic New York City courthouse statue is all about abortion. Uh, and another one, a new statue atop the New York City courthouse. The artist says that it's part of an urgent and necessary cultural reckoning underway as New York, as New York, sorry, I can't read that, as New York reconsiders traditional representations of power in public spaces and recast civic structures to better reflect 21st century social mores. So basically, <laughs> people saw this statue and thought Satan. Um, and people saw this statue and thought Medusa. And people saw this statue and thought demonic. Um, and I have I've taken pictures of this statue um very closely, and I'll show you them. But and you can check my Instagram at Artemis Expert or um the Goddess Project. And it, it there's absolutely nothing demonic about this statue. Um and so that really piqued my interest and it really showed me how little people understand about horned divinities. And it all, my, my pet peeve, of course, is that 
because Christianity adapted a horned divinity as the devil or Satan, that seems to be the only option for horned divinities. It's like either the devil or nothing else. And so I think it really irked me. Number one, because the devil is a fiction, right? Um, and what I mean by that is literally the devil is a fiction in the sense that that whole depiction of this dude with horns and a trident all red and down in the ground in a field of fire, that is a Christian fan fiction, okay? Uh, it is fantasy. It is, of course, fear. It is ignorance. It is a product of, of lack of knowledge of history. Um, yeah, it is really, oof, I, I can go on for days on how much ignorance it took to build that image and how ingrained that image is now in the minds, particularly of Christian Americans who are of course all over Twitter and the internet bashing the statue, but who lack the knowledge, I think, I hope, um, of the beauty of horned divinities and the um, usefulness of horned divinities that I think has long been lost because we no longer live in an agricultural society and we're no longer in contact with how we get our food and how we grow our food, we have become cowards, easily threatened by images that we see and we have now labeled as demonic. And so I began thinking about this and thinking about this and I couldn't let it go, you know? And my daughter and I went to Salem uh, for a little trip um, because I'm fascinated with witches and witchcraft and, and the imagery around that as well. And so we went to Salem, but on the way to Salem, I said to her, let's stop in New York City because I really need to see the statue. I really need to see what people have a problem with. Like, because from what I saw in the pictures is this really beautiful, um, even non-sexualized in a way. I mean, she has a female figure, but there's nothing brash about this statue um and as you get closer at first I was like are those horns and then I realized that's her hair and I mean we could do a whole podcast on women's hair and how much hair women's hair is feared in patriarchy and um this idea that hair uh, is associated with vanity and temptation it's like the dark ages of Christianity have poisoned so much of our imagination and our lives and our morals that we are really lost in a goop right like in a a goo of medieval male fear fantasy you know what i'm saying not only of course did thousands and thousands hundreds of thousands of women and some men lose their lives uh, during the European witch trials in Salem, you know, there was only 20, but still. Um, but this obsession with this misunderstanding, purposeful misunderstanding of the relationship between women and the horned god uh, or goddesses and their horned consort has been so misconstrued for so long that... I really thought that I needed to say something about it, you know? And plus, I absolutely love this statue. It is stunning. I love gold, anything. 
Um, and I really love this statue. And I just thought, you know what? And it's funny because I don't actually talk about the golden calf um, because there's so much to talk about, right? So we don't want to be here for hours, but I do want to take you on a little bit of a trip. But I, so let me make a little caveat here for the golden calf. Um, I do go through some Bible verses um, down the road in this in this episode, but it is no accident that the when Moses is up on the mountain, you know, getting into Ten Commandments, um, they the people at the bottom make a calf out of gold, and I don't think it's an accident that Sh Shazia um, Sikander makes this statue out of gold because gold has so much nuance and symbolism not only is it a symbol of wealth and power which again is really so amazing with the one statue that's right on top of the courthouse the appellate courthouse uh, a place where judgments about people's lives are made yeah uh, so so the idea of power of wealth but also gold is a symbol of luck of prosperity um of success and so it's not an accident that this artist has decided to use gold. And it's not an accident that there's a lot of gold references um, associated with bulls and calves, excuse me, and other, other divinities. And so everything that you see, everything that you see has a complex meaning. And I think one of the failures of education particularly for us here in North America, is the fact that we don't edu educate children to see beyond what they see, to understand that things are layered and that what you see here, for example, visually has you know a two, 3,000 year history. And I'll be honest with you that I think that that's done purposely, that children are purposely not taught to look beyond what they see, because that's questioning, it's critical thinking. Um, and critical thinking often leads to the unpacking or destructing of structures and frameworks that have been in place to control us. And so, and also there's no accident that more and more history courses are canceled, more and more philosophy programs are closed more and more arts programs are underfunded. All of these are part of, I don't want to say like, I don't want to say like it's a conspiracy in the sense of like, there's these three people that are running the world and they're doing this. But I think it's sort of like a mood or a vibe in the sense that those in power understand that the less we know, the more power they have. And that's as old as time, right? It's not new. Um, it's not modern. But in modernity, I think it's, again, used in this way. And so we then remain quite ignorant and we become very afraid and very angry very quickly and we become very divided. And so I feel like this episode is very powerful for me. I don't know if you can tell yet, but it's very powerful for me because as an as an educator in the histories in the philosophies in you know the visual arts i sometimes feel overwhelmed when i'm faced with a class that is looking at an image and has no idea what they're seeing or 
when I'm faced with a class that is looking at an image and really only sees the one dimensional aspect of it that they've been taught. And so then I have to kind of go back in history and we have to start from wherever and we have to, you know, do 2000 years of history or whatever it is, um, it quickly, you know, take them quickly through it and bring them to sort of a, a to the modern world. And I don't mind to do that. I, you know, I enjoy doing that because that's my role, but it, it's, it saddens me a little bit. Yeah. And so maybe this podcast is also a way to do that. Um, and what I really like about this podcast is that you're here by choice, right? Often students that are in my class are there because they want to get a credit or they need the class for their degree, but here you're here by choice. And so hopefully you enjoy this conversation. So let's talk about horns. Now, horns have a long, long, long history. Yeah. And cattle actually has a very, very long history as part of the religious uh, religious rites and mythologies of other people. Uh, many, many people throughout the world have at one point in time or another worshipped some type of a horned bull or seen a horned cow or cattle as sacred. For example, in the Sumerian uh, religion, Marduk is known as the bull of Utu. Uh, and here I have an image of a bull, obviously with a young bull with small horns, but also a sun and a, a snake on his face, on his head, sorry. Um, the association between bulls and snakes and sort of the halo of the sun are again, as old as time as symbols of power. Uh, many of the caves in France, for example, and we've talked about caves last season, um, the, the main images in the caves, the ones certainly the oldest ones in France, are of bulls and women, right? So this relationship between bulls and women goes back to the Neolithic uh, and perhaps even before, you know? Um, and so it's a very important relationship. It's a very powerful relationship. In fact, it's a relationship of power. And I think that that I think has been debased into a relationship of depravity and sexuality um, and grotesque aspects. Yeah. Um, and it's funny because I interviewed Zenobia Neal, who is a historical fiction author yesterday. Uh, and I will, I will post her episode in the coming weeks. And one of the things we talked about yesterday was the relationships of bulls and women, um, like Pasiphae and Europa and others. And so this idea that the one way to debase women, especially powerful women, is to make them have sex with a beast or an animal. And so that 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 level of sort of depravity or uh, immoral behavior moves her from a symbol of power uh, you know so let's say she's a wealthy queen or whatever or a beautiful young maiden whatever the fact that she is attracted to or has a uh, sexual relationship with an animal automatically demotes her and so we talked about that at length so you, when, when that episode comes up I, I know you'll enjoy that but it reminds me very much of exactly what is happening uh, today so in the past, like I said, in the caves, you have this image of bulls and women as a symbol of fertility, not that they have sex with each other, absolutely not, but that there is a connection between 
the prowess and fertility of bulls and the magnificence and power of women's bodies. And so that um, the bull represents this kind of fertile god of nature and the woman represents a fertile goddess of nature. And so there aren't any depictions of them actual having intercourse because that's actually not necessary, right? The, the intercourse is not necessary. Um, it's the figures of power that are collaborating in the fertility of agriculture and the community. And so there's lots of bull imagery. Um, of course, in the constellation and in astrology, we have Taurus, which is an important uh, constellation. Um, we have all kinds of um, different religions in which we see um, a bull or a um, a hybrid human. Him, uh, the Sumerian, for example, guardian deity Yamasu was often depicted as a hybrid, and they had a body of either winged bulls or lions with heads of humans, etc. And, and so you see a great deal of Lamassus, for example, that appear in Syria. And there's an image here of two Lamassi, two Lamassi, or two Lamassu, who guard the doorways of the castle. And they were often, sometimes they were associated with genies. Um, they had wings and they had bull. They are sort of like a chimeric, an early chimeric depiction because they have sort of they have human faces with beards and bull horns but then they have wings and they have a lion body and so often they were seen as guardians uh, these were and they were placed in different cities throughout Assyria um, and they were seen as the guardians of sacred spaces or the guardians of palaces or or places of power yeah? and so combining early combinations of humans and animals, particularly bulls, but also lions and other animals, creates a symbol of power, right? And so it's symbolic in many ways, more than anything else. And so I wanted to talk about uh, the Egyptians. We'll start with Hathor and Isis, um, and then we'll talk a little bit about Amun as well. Let's begin with Hathor, as she predates most of the other Egyptian gods, uh, or she's one of the early, um, earliest interpretations of the Egyptian divinities, let's say. Certainly, she is often interpreted as a cow with horns, uh, with a circular disc in between the horns. Now, I should say, actually, that one of the things that we don't see often in the modern world that was a big part of the ancient world was the fact that cows, female cows, also have horns. And so there is a great debate now among scholars about whether or not horns are solely representations of bulls or male cattle, um, or if they were possibly also representations of cows and female cattle, as both cows and bulls were used in religious rites, in rituals, in representation, etc. And so I bring up Hathor, because she is a very powerful Egyptian goddess. And she is not only doesn't only wear horns as Isis does later, but she actually is represented by the head of a cow with horns and uh, the um, the celestial 
sun in between the horns. Now she was a god. She was a goddess of heaven. She was the wife of Horus um, and the god of Ra, um, Horus and Ra. So Hathor is the mythological mother of pharaohs, and we know that this is also the position of of Isis later on. Um, the name Hathor actually translates into the house of Horus, which is really Horus, which is really interesting. Um, and she was often identified as the goddess queen of Egypt. Yeah. Um, the interesting part about Hathor is that she is the opposite of Ra, the female opposite of Ra. And so she maintains some of her avenging characteristics. Um, and she represents everything like love, sexuality, maternal care. She is the companion of several male divinities. She has lots of their children. All of this is part of her tradition. And, and she's famous for crossing the boundaries between the worlds, uh, between the living and the dead. Um, she was called sometimes the Lady of the West or the Goddess of the Western Mountain, especially in the city of Thebes in Greece. So there's lots to Hathor. That is fascinating. But I think for the purpose of our podcast today, she it's her personification as a cow. So her personification as a cow, uh, she makes her a figure of material and sublime character. Okay. Now, like I said, usually she's shown as a woman with horns on her head and the solar disc, but often she is represented um, as a cow. And in fact, sometimes there are representations of her as a full cow, um, that is wearing that has these these horns, but then has this solar disc. And there are several representations in, in hieroglyphics and in Egyptian art where she is the cow with the horns and the disc, and there is a a young pharaoh or a young male like suckling at her teat. Yes. Yeah. Um, and again, this has very much of that idea that princes and pharaohs drank sacred milk from the cow of heaven, okay? So in this case, the horns and the representation of cattle is extremely positive and extremely powerful. And we see this later with Isis. Isis becomes more popular in the new kingdom and she sort of inherits the horns of Hathor and the disc, the solar disc, which I often refer to sort of the disc of enlightenment. Um, there is, you know, and for, I think from the disc of enlightenment, uh, although don't quote me on this, um, we see a similarity to the halos of other divinities in other places. So there's always some type of a solar or a light around the head, and that always is a symbol of enlightenment. Um, and so Isis later on is seen suckling Horus, her son, and she has the uh, sacred horns on her head and the solar disc in between. And in addition to that, she has a snake at her third eye. And if you want to learn more about Isis, I did uh, a very in-depth episode in season one. Feel free to scroll through and find that episode um, where we discuss all the aspects of who Isis is, who she was, who she became and who she is today. Um, and But it's important to notice the sort of the transference of the horns and the idea that the horns can be female. You know, uh, I think that that's something that 
people don't always pay attention to. And so I think because we've associated the horns with the goat, with the devil so much in the West, whenever we see, let's say, a female with horns, we are shocked or we're taken back or we're like, oh, this is unnatural. But I just wanted to bring up the fact that females have been admired and drawn and represented with horns for millennia um, before modernity sort of took that away from them. And so next, let's talk about Amun, yeah, while we're in Egypt. Now, Amun or Amon or Amen or Amun-Ra, all of those work. If you watch The Mummy, you know you've heard that term, Amun-Ra, repeatedly um, as part of the chants of the Book of the Dead, in the film, I mean. Um, he's an Egyptian god of the sun and air, okay? But he is one of the most important gods of ancient Egypt, who also rose to prominence at Thebes at the beginning of the New Kingdom. Now, the New Kingdom was around 1500 BCE, so about 3,500 years ago. And this his cult was one of the most popular cults in Egypt, okay? For centuries. For centuries, we have this ram god. Um, sometimes depicted as a bearded man that uh, wears a headdress with ram in his hair, like ram horns in his hair. He is... Um, sometimes he's just depicted simply as a ram. And so he's a symbol of fertility. Um, he is seen as, um, he's sometimes referred to as the invisible one or the mysterious one. Um, he was often considered the Lord of all who encompassed, you know, every aspect of creation. He had a fantastic, fantastic power. And there is a point in the Middle Kingdom, when him and Ra um, become linked. And so Amun-Ra, Ra being the sun god, Amun-Ra becomes the term for both of them, the goat sun god kind of thing. Um, and then he becomes sort of the hidden one. He is uh, attached to natural phenomenon, natural principle. You know, the, the more I talk about this this ram god, I'm thinking also of the the, how many times the lamb comes up in Christianity and how many times Jesus is associated with a lamb that is sacrificed. And, you know, while sheep and goats are somewhat slightly different uh, as animals, but they're horned, horned animals. Yeah. Horned agricultural animals. And then I think about Jesus as the lamb and I think about Jesus as the shepherd and I'm starting and, and us as the sheep. Now, there's a lot in that statement that I'm making, right? Um, because sheep are often not seen. They're not the smartest animals. Um, and a ram is not a sheep. And actually, goats are quite smart animals. Anyways, <laughs> we can do this all day. But there is something fascinating about the use of goats, rams, shepherds, sheep, blah, blah, blah as symbols of sacrifice, as symbols of religious powers, as symbols of community. And it predates Christianity, right? It predates Christianity by a couple of thousand years, at least, right? Uh, certainly, for example, Amun or even Hathor as cattle gods or goat gods predate Christianity by a few thousand years. And Sometimes there is this leaning 
or this tendency to assume that once Christianity is established, which is all the way in the 300s CE, um, all of the things of the past were like invalid. And as a historian, of course, you can imagine that's a little bit irksome because Christianity does not just come out of a vacuum. You know, it doesn't just pop into existence and then it is completely unaffected by history and completely unaffected by anything. And it just kind of creates its own stories. Everything and everywhere in our human community is interacted, is interformed. And so... Christianity and all of its symbols, whether for good or bad, are born from every other culture around them, particularly the Egyptians who were were so influential in the Middle East and in the Mediterranean, from which, you know, Jesus is living um, and Christianity is, is born, as well as Judaism and other cultures, right? So, and other religions. So, there is a thread that if you care to look back, and trace or pull, you will unthread this whole history of symbolism and of worship and of divinity that I hope will enlighten your knowledge, you know? That's really my goal, right? Is to talk about, to, to pique your interest in this, you know, one hour episode or an hour and a half, whatever it is, to pique your interest to go look things up further or to pique your interest or to help you see that history is so fundamental still to the way that we live, to the way that we think, and to our reactions to things like a golden statue in New York City. Yeah. Uh, so Amun is a very powerful Ram God. In fact, he is so, so powerful as a god and so well-respected and so famous um, that he eventually uh, becomes associated with Zeus Amun or Zeus Amon. Yeah. Now, Zeus Amon, we have very little information about, and there's only a few statues. That I, I'm showing you two here. You can Google them if you like, but it's basically the face of Zeus that you probably normally know, which... Uh, looks like a Middle Eastern Mediterranean guy with a beard and a mustache and his kind of longish curly hair. But he has these two ram horns that curl from his temples and uh, along his ears. And this is Zeusamon. And so here we have a figure in a Greek Hellenistic pantheon who is incorporated or fused with Amun or Amun or Amun-Ra of the Egyptian pantheon. And this is done mostly by Alexander the Great and uh, the legends around Alexander the Great because we are told um, that Alexander the Great goes to where Amun was worshipped at Siwa, which is an oasis in the middle of the desert. Um, and he visits an oracle there him. And we are told that he is allowed to enter a sort of private room or chamber where Zeus speaks to him directly. So normally when people would go to this oracle, 
which is uh, a well-known oracle, let's say, before Alexander the Great, and it becomes, Amun becomes Hellenized into Zeus Amun. Um, people would go there and they would do the same thing they normally do at an oracle. They would offer a sacrifice. They would speak to the oracle priests or priestesses, in this case, priests, and they would receive some type of a prophecy or some type of a message. But for Zeus, I mean, for Alexander the Great, what he does, because I guess, and this is legend, because he's seen as such a important person and such a favorite of the god, we are told that he is allowed to go into the sacred room, which is Zeus's room, and that he has a private conversation with Zeus. And legend tells us that when Alexander the Great returns from Siwa and from having this conversation with Zeus, he begins to believe or he fully believes that he is the son of Zeus instead, of course, of the son of Philip. And there is sort of an unconfirmed legend that he sends his mother, Olympia, a message that says after this visit that says, um, I have something to tell you. It's something that is secret and mysterious and that I cannot send in a note and I must tell you in person when I return. And he never returns, of course. Um, he never makes it back to see his mother. But there, the legend kind of grows out of this idea that perhaps Zeus Amon told him that he is the son of Zeus Amon. And so because of this legend and its its growth, especially after Alexander the Great's death and its continued sort of growth over time, the oracle at Zeusamon and the legend and the worship of Zeusamon becomes more and more um, prominent in the Hellenistic Empire. And so this is how you see transference happening. That is Amun or Amon in the Egyptian, um, the Egyptian pantheon is in power, you know, for a couple of thousand years. And then as the Greeks and as Hellenization spreads throughout this area, uh, we have the movement of Zeus and, and this sort of integration or fusion of these two divinities. And now suddenly we have Zeus Amon, a horned god or a ram god. And we have this ram depiction. Now, to be fair, this does not become the standard for Zeus, as many of you know. Uh, the Hellenized version of Zeus without horns is the most popular. But it is still fascinating to see this combination of Zeus Amon because it shows us the power of horns. It shows us that putting horns on, putting horns on or antlers on, as we'll see with dear goddesses, um connects you to a divine power. I hate to use that word over and over again, but a there's a divine connection there. There's more than just, even that someone like Zeus, who's already divine, the very fact that he's wearing these horns somehow makes him more, you know, it gives him more. And it, it, it culturates him, that's not a word, but it it embeds him in the culture, of, in this case of the Siwa people, but it embeds him, like it ingrains him in the culture. And that is extremely important because horns and bulls and fusions of cultures must be recognized for us to understand 
why is there such a reaction to this golden goddess in New York City? Yeah. That also then brings me to some two of my favorite historic characters or figures, uh, Pan and Enkidu. Yeah. Um, and I'll start with Enkidu first, but but Pan really, uh, poor Pan. Yeah, he really gets uh, he really gets the worst of all. Um, Enkidu, as some of you know, is the bestie of Gilgamesh in the Epic of Gilgamesh. I'm not sure if you know, maybe you didn't read the Epic of Gilgamesh, that's okay. Um, in short, and in very, very short, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh leaves the town in order to find immortality and to, um, actually, no, he doesn't leave the town yet to find immortality until it, it until Enkidu dies, but um, he leaves the city life and goes into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he meets a man, a man of the wilderness, and his name is Enkidu. And we are told that this man is like a wild man. He understands the animals. He can speak to them. He lives in the woods, all that kind of stuff. And he is civilized by a woman, yeah. Enkidu. And, he, and Gilgamesh and Enkidu at first uh, don't like each other. They wrestle each other. And then eventually they become best friends. And metaphorically and archetypally, psychologists and other historians have used the story to describe the war within man between his civilized nature and his wild nature, right? And that makes sense to some degree. There's a lot more to it. Maybe one day I'll do a, a, a podcast on the Epic of Gilgamesh. Um, there's a lot, it's very, very multi-layered. It's one of the, it's the very first epic in the middle, middle East and Mediterranean. It's, it's a great story. It's a fantastic story. Maybe we'll do an episode on it, but what's fascinating for us here today about Enkidu is that Enkidu is often represented as a horned man, uh, and sometimes half goat, half man, which then leads me to Pan, right? So you see how cultures have this continuum. Now, the Epic of Gilgamesh is written before, I would like to say it predates the stories of Pan, but there's so much overlap that it's very difficult to sort of really pin it down as far as Pan is concerned, because Pan is also an archaic divinity that sort of predates the Greeks. So there's a lot of predating and dating sometimes as you go backwards in time becomes more blurry. Um, due to literally lack of evidence and lack of writings. But let's say they're contemporaries even, okay? So Enkidu is this half goat, half man with horns who is who represents the wilderness and he represents the wilderness in old man and all, all men, the, the wildness, right? Pan is very similar. Okay? So Pan then is in the Greek pantheon. He's half goat, half man, um, he was the god of shepherds and hunters. He was a god of meadows and forests and the mountain wilds. Um, and he's called Pan because his unseen presence would arouse panic in those who would traverse his realm. So this takes me into a bit of a longer story time because once human beings started living in cities, even in the ancient world, they began to lose some connection with the forests. 
And slowly they began to see the forests as places of mysteries, of darkness, of wilderness, of danger. And as a person, and some of you may have may experience this today, if you go into a forest by yourself, even if you go hiking by yourself, there may be moments when you're standing there in the middle of a bunch of trees and wind and animals and birds, whatever. And you may feel a sense of fear. You may feel a sense like you're being watched. There are sounds creaking everywhere. And there may be a sense of fear or panic. In the old days, this was a representative of Pan in the sense that because he's the god of the forests and the wilderness, and some, and often he's unseen. In fact, one could argue that no Greek really ever saw him because he's a divinity. Um, that sense of fear, like someone's watching you, like someone's following you almost, um, was what they referred to as Pan. But Pan himself as a figure in Greek mythology is like a fun, flirty figure. He plays a lot of pan pipes, right? So he plays the, the pan pipes. Uh, he chases nymphs all the time. Um, he, he's, he's a bit of a trickster figure. He likes to play jokes on uh, other gods. Um, he... He often hangs out with Dionysus because as you can imagine, Dionysus, which we'll talk about in a minute, is also a god of the wild and the wilderness. Um, in the ancient, sometimes in the classical age, the Greeks also used his word pan to mean everything or all. Um, and so he's often, he's what we would call a rustic deity, a shepherd god, right? Particularly around Northern Greece. And He's also he's also actually the inspiration for the goatfish god in the constellation of Capricorn, which of course I am a Capricorn, um, and so maybe maybe this is why I like him so much. Um, but uh, imagine him just as a wild, uninhibited figure. Okay, now there is a hymn to Pan that I would like to read to you closely, just for story time, from Homer. Uh, Homer writes this hymn to Pan in the 7th to 6th century BCE, so 27, 2800 years ago. Okay? And it goes like this. It says, Muse, tell me about Pan, the dear son of Hermes, with his goat's feet and two horns, a lover of merry noise. Through wooded glades he wanders with dancing nymphae, who footed on some sheer cliff's edge call upon Pan, the shepherd god, long-haired and unkempt. So he's really burly, right? He has a beard, he has long hair. He has every snow crest and the mountain's peak and rocky crests for his domain. Hither and thither he goes through the close thickets, now lured by soft streams. Now he presses on amongst towering crags and climbs up to the highest peak that overlooks the flocks. Often he courses through the glistening high mountains, and often on the shouldering hills, he speeds along, slaying wild beasts, this keen-eyed god. Only at evening, as he returns from the chase, he sounds his note, playing sweet and low on his pipes of reed. Not even she could excel him in melody, that bird who flower-laden spring, pouring forth her lament, utters honey-voiced song among the leaves. At that hour, the clear-voiced nymphae are with him, 
and move with nimble feet singing by some spring of dark water, while Echo wails about the mountain top, and the god on this side or on that of the choir or at times sliding into the mist flies it nimbly with his feet. On his back he wears a spotted lynx pelt, and he delights in high-pitched songs in a soft meadow where crocuses and sweet-smelling hyacinths bloom at random in the grass. Yeah? So during the day, he frolics through the woods. At night, he frolics with the nymphi. He sings songs. He plays his instruments. They sing of the blessed gods on high Olympus and choose to tell of such a one as luck-bringing Hermes above the rest, how he is the swift messenger of all the gods, and how he came to Arcadia, the land of many springs and mother of flocks, there where his sacred place is as god of Kylene. For there, though a god, Hermes, he used to tend curly fleece sheep in the service of mortal man, because there fell on him a waxed, there fell on him and waxed a strong melting desire to wed the rich tressed daughter of Dryphos. And there he brought about the merry marriage. So Hermes and Dryphos are married. Hermes becomes a shepherd. Hermes becomes a shepherd for a time because he's in love with this human daughter. And in the house, she bore Hermes a dear son, who from his birth was marvelous to look upon. With goat's feet and two horns, a nosy, merry, laughing child. So I just want you to think about how adorable the Greek gods and the Greeks think that Pan is. When the nurse saw his face and full beard, she was afraid and sprang up and fled and left the child. Then luck bringing Hermes received him and took him in his arms. Very glad in his heart was the god. And he went quickly to the abodes of his deathless gods, so his family, carrying his son wrapped in warm skins of mountain hares and set him down beside Zeus and showed him to the rest of the gods. Then all the immortals were glad in heart, and Bacchus, Dionysus, and especially said they called the boy Pan because he delighted in all their hearts. Because remember that Pan means all also. And so hail to you, Lord, I seek your favor with a song. Okay. So this is Homer writing about Pan as a character, and then the you know the birth, the the, the relationship that led to Pan. So Hermes. And uh, his human wife, um, Dryphos, Dryops, sorry, Dryops, have Pan. And although the nurse is kind of freaked out by the way that Pan looks, Hermes adores him. And then he takes him to the gods of Olympus and they adore him and they love him. And in fact, Herme uh, Pan is a very well-loved divinity. And if you ever get to any museum anywhere that has a... Um, ancient Greek or Hellenistic um, exhibit, you will see Pan for sure, no doubt. You often see him with Aphrodite. You often see him with Dionysus. You see him everywhere. And I guess for me, what's sad is that he is the main figure that has been culturally appropriated into the devil, into Satan. Um, because the Europeans during the medieval period and the dark period had become so uneducated in Greek history and mythology and philosophy. And when they came across some images and stories 
in what was left of Greek books back then, because there wasn't much. They saw when they kind of found him again, you know, and they found Greek mythology again, and they found classics again, they saw, they viewed these stories and these characters as grotesque, as primitive, as uneducated. Um, they had the attitude that those who came before them, like the Greeks and the Romans, and, and even those who predated the Greeks, were barbarians of some kind, were uneducated, which is hilarious considering how uneducated the Europeans were themselves at the time. They had gone through this ignorant, closed mentality for a thousand years. But yet they had the nerve, the audacity, the gumption to look back and go, oh, those guys were totally primitive, not us in our own, living in our own filth and burning women at the stake and all the other crap that we're doing um, and we're about to do. Uh, but those guys back there, because look at this divinity that they worship. This is like a creature. And so they demonized. Their ignorance led to fear, led to revulsion. And therefore they demonized this creature, this God that was actually just someone that was meant to be quite fun and uh liberating and wild and you know i mean freud and jung and all of these psychologists later on see pan especially but also enkidu uh, or any sort of horned god or hoofed god as the representations of man's fear of his own wildness um that men fear that they cannot control their own wildness uh, their animalistic nature and so then they make it into something negative that must be uh, beaten into submission or, you know, if we go all the way to making it into Satan or the devil must be avoided at all time, must be killed, must be destroyed, must be blah, blah, blah. <sighs> and it's just, it's so much ignorance. Um, it, it's, it's such a clear lack of education um, on the part of those who created this figure into a demonic figure that it's it feels a bit overwhelming just you know to talk about uh, to talk about it um, and so I promised you that I would talk a little bit about Dionysus now there's a few figures Dionysus again is a super complicated god and I've talked about him a little bit in the Ariadne and Dionysus um, episode that uh was uploaded a couple of weeks ago. And if you want to learn more about Dionysus, I would recommend that. Uh, but I feel like Dionysus could also very much use his own episode. He's a very complex figure. We know him often as the god of wine and we know him as the um, the god of the wilderness as well. And he has a complicated heritage and he's half human, half god. All of these things are, are fascinating about him. But for the purpose of our episode today, um, I would like to refer to Dionysus uh, the bull or the or Dionysus as described as bull horned. There are a few gods and goddesses in the Greek pantheon that are described as bull horned and Dionysus is one of them. And I found a few figures or a few images of him with little horns. You could see his little horns. Um, if you Google bull horned Dionysus anytime, whenever you feel like it, um, you will find 
um, you will find some images of him. Not a lot because he's got a lot of other more favorite uh, representations and because sculptors and artists like to represent him in a few other ways. But there's at least these three and there's probably a few more. Now in the Orphic hymn uh, to the god of the trineal feasts, the writer says, I call upon you blessed many named and frenzied Bacchus. Bacchus is the Roman name of Dionysus. Bullhorned Nicene redeemer, god of the winepress conceived in fire. And so this is one of the uh, epithets to um, Dionysus being bullhorned. Um, some also call him bull-faced. There are other hymns that call him bull-faced. And there is a combination between Dionysus as bull-faced and the bulls of Crete. And we're going to look a little bit at the bull leaping in Crete and the sacred bull of Crete. But there is a lot of overlapping history here because of Dionysus' connection to Ariadne, his marriage to Ariadne, and Ariadne being the priestess of Crete, and Crete having the story of the Minotaur, which is a later story, but also they're famous for their bull leaping and bull training that they did. Um, you can see the overlap of layers here. You can see, you know, one of the interesting things is how much the bull imagery blends into everyone, how much the horns blend into so many figures um, from someone like Isis to someone like Amun to someone like Zeus to then Dionysus to all these figures. Uh, there seems to be a nonstop uh, fascination between humans and horned gods. And I don't know if that is simply because we've got the, all of this millennia of agriculture, and that is a symbol that anybody, any farmer in any culture in any village in the world will understand horns. Do you know what I'm saying? Whether they're the horns of a goat or the horns of a bull or the horns of, I don't know, deer as a hunter actually even as a hunter so there is something about horns and antlers there's something about a crown of bones <laughs> on your head that is a unconscious image that all humans seem to connect to and that connection is almost always like food or wealth or fertility all those things are of course combined and so you probably don't, you're probably not surprised then that someone as powerful as Dionysus, who is besties with Pan and married to Ariadne, may sometimes be associated with a bull and be, be called bull-faced or, or bull-horned or et cetera. Um, and so Dionysus is another god that is a horned god. Um or a god with horns. Yeah. The other interesting thing, moving on to, I just wanted to mention Hera and Europa here, moving on to a couple of female figures or moving through some of our female figures now. Um, 
at the beginning of the episode, I talked about how having goddesses, powerful goddesses associated, especially sexually with bulls often debases them. What's really fascinating though about Hera, and I just finished uh, the course on Hera. So if you want to learn more about Hera, um, there is a link in the description for the Artemis Center courses. And one of my goddess basics courses that you can take online, and it's all self-paced and you could go through it yourself. It's a lot of fun. Um, is on the fact that Hera is two things that we forget. Number one, she's always associated with cows. There's a deep association between Hera's and cows. And she's often referred to as cow-eyed. And this actually connects back to the horned goddess of Hathor, to um, the importance of cow imagery in, in places like Hinduism uh, and Southeast Asia, to the association of women with cows, but cows that have horns, okay? I mean, I don't know if it's a well-known fact that cows have horns, female cows. I, I know that we see cows today with little stubs, right? They have these little like stubs. But I am told, and it seems certainly in imagery and archaeological uh, artifacts that we found, that cows used to have long horns as well. So in art, sometimes, depending on how far the artist went to describe or paint the bull or the cow, there is some debate in some of the figures that are like non-biologically depicted um, there is some debate about whether or not they're male or female. And um, Hera is associated with the cow goddess, and therefore she can be considered a horned goddess. Um, although I have not, we have not yet found a, a sculpture or a piece with her on it where she has horns, her association with the cow and her being called the cow-eyed goddess or the cow goddess can be seen as a a horned goddess implication. Now, the other two that we talked about, Europa and Pasiphae, the one thing that's very interesting in their debasement, that is in their movement from powerful women to women who have sex with bulls, is their fascination with how beautiful the bulls are. So there is something supernatural about the bulls these two bulls, the one which is Zeus who seduces Europa and the one which Poseidon sends to King Minos that Pasiphae supposedly is infatuated with and has sex with, these two bulls are really meant to be magical bulls. You want to think of them almost like bull unicorns. <laughs> you know, They're just so stunningly beautiful that they seduce a woman. Uh, and while I lean towards the fact that this is a debasement, uh, especially for Pasiphae, this is very much a transition between Greek mythology and Minoan mythology because Poseidon sends, Poseidon, who is a Greek god, sends the bull to the Minoans. And by Pasiphae having sex with the bull, the Minoan structure starts to fall apart. And eventually the Athenians and the Greeks become victorious. 
So I lean towards the fact that this is more of a debasement. But what I'm finding fascinating is just the very fact, the imagination of storytellers that women could fall in love with bulls. And so I think that there is something more there. There is something, mm, there's something so powerful around bull imagery and horned animal imagery um, that even the storytellers or the story listeners find these kinds of stories fascinating. And so then that leads me a little bit to the Minoan leap bulling or the Minoan sacred bull. And if you ever look up any Minoan um, art, you will find bulls everywhere. Now, the tricky thing is some of the bulls are very clearly male and some of the bulls are, you know, are ungendered, let's say. And so again, there's this debate on whether or not these were male bulls or female bulls. And certainly when we're talking about the consecrated horns, the horns that were found on top of the um, Minoan property at Gnosis, um, there is a debate on whether or not these are male horns or female horns. And next week, um, or no, in the coming weeks, I have a really fantastic recording with a Minoan expert. Her name is Laura Perry. And we talk at length about these consecrated horns. The fact that the Minoans had these horns, which are very specific. You know, they're, I don't know how to explain it. They're, they're all the same, right? So it's a very specific symbol. And they had them all on top of their houses. And they had them all on top of their uh, properties, um, and even their temples, stuff like that. And so one of the questions I asked her is, you know, why? What, what does this mean? And is it a bull reference? And she contends that this is actually a horned cow reference and that this has to do with the sun and astronomy. And uh, you'll have to come back for that episode to, to listen to her give that description. But it's fascinating because there is so much talk around bull imagery and horn imagery in Crete and yet not very many people have acknowledged the fact that in Crete, both male and female cattle had horns. The other image that comes up a lot is the image that I have here, which is the leaping um, athlete on top of a bull. And it refers to the sport of the Minoans, which was bull leaping. Yeah, um, And so the sacred bull, the bull is sacred in Crete. Um, it's you know, we see lots and lots of imagery. And one of the things that I've learned is that bulls are very easily trained from when they're young, that they're very soft creatures, actually, that they're not raging bulls. Um, and I was thinking about that a couple of days ago as I was working through some of the research for this podcast. And I was thinking about the fact that bulls are actually very easy to train and if you start them from when they're young, they're almost like puppies, or so I'm told by Laura Perry, who grew up on a farm and grew up around bulls. Um, and it made me think about uh, bull riding, you know, because I, I'm a Canadian and in Calgary, there's a lot of bull riding, there's a stampede and there's all this kind of stuff that goes on. And I thought about the fact that during a stampede, they have to tie the, or they tie the bull's genitals to enrage the bull. And then when they release him out of the, whatever, the stock thing, um, they release 
his genitals. And so he goes on this rampage. Um, and that, and then I thought about, you know, um, the matadors in Spain who, um, who perform with a bull and the, the repeated sort of angry, raging bull imagery versus what Laura Perry and other experts have shared with me that actually bulls can be very easily trained to performed and can be really soft figures, uh, animals. And so if you were doing bull leaping, like the Cretans were doing, you the bulls were actually perhaps not even angry or raging. Um, and in fact, were part of the show and were trained kind of like circus animals in a way to allow a rider to stand on them, to leap on them, so that the danger aspect in Cretan bull leaping games was more about like gymnastics keeping or acrobatics, keeping your balance, doing the somersaults, that kind of stuff. Not so much about controlling the bull or tackling the bull. Um, and you've probably seen, I don't know if you've seen, but you've probably seen people do that in um, circuses with horses where the acrobat is riding on the back of the horse and he or she does a bunch of flips or a bunch of acrobatics or gymnastics on the back of a horse. And so my understanding is that this is the way that bulls were treated in Crete for this particular exercise. Of course, bulls were also sacrificed. Um, and again, the sacrifice is comes out of similar symbolism, and that is that a bull is an honorable animal, an animal of power, an animal of prowess around fertility. And of course, sacrificing this animal is a great honor for the God that you are sacrificing it to. Um, and so there is, again, a lot of association between humans and bulls. And some of it is... Hmm, Some of it is a bit of a dominating relationship where the human sacrifices the bull or the human rides the bull. And some of it is more of a sacred or honored relationship where the God is actually transformed into a bull-like figure. You know? Other goddesses that are associated with horns famously are Selene. And Selene is a Titan goddess of the moon. And she has the little moon, the half moon on her head. And often she is associated or called um, a horned goddess. Now, Celine has a really interesting story in the sense that she is um, a goddess of the moon, a titaness of the moon. She is later associated or blended with Artemis and she actually is associated with Pasiphae. She's often associated with Hecate. And of course, Hecate is also associated with Artemis. Sometimes Selene is also associated with Hera. And so one of the things that you can see here about horned goddesses is that they share um, similar epitaphs. Yeah. And one of the images that I have here on a mosaic, because a lot of people, when you research the horned goddesses and you research Selene, a lot of people will argue, oh, well, she has the moon on her head because that's the most famous and most prettiest image of Selene. She has a, she's got this beautiful little face and she's got this little half crescent moon on top of her head. 
Um, but one of my favorite images is a ceramic, a Roman ceramic, in which uh, Celine is kind of half naked and the horns are coming out of her shoulders, right? And so this leads me to believe that she was a horn goddess before she was associated with just the crescent of the moon, if that makes sense. Um, that there is something archaic about a horned goddess and again, powerful. And as the practice and tradition of Selene moves through the classical period in Greece and forward in time, the horniness of her representation becomes just the crescent moon. And so people go, oh yeah, it's because of the crescent moon. But there are a few images in which she actually has horns, horns coming out of her body uh, that are, you know, unexplained. Uh, or people go, oh, well, this was just another kind of moon, but it's coming out of her shoulders. <laughs> so, uh, and so Celine is a very interesting um uh, character. She's sometimes seen, uh, said to drive a team of oxen. Um, and that might be why she's sometimes horned. Um, you know, again, there's this association of goddesses and oxen or bulls, right? And Hecate um, is also linked to the sacred bull. No surprise there at all. Um, there is a magical papyri that um, we found that dates back to the second century BCE um, and it's full of spe spells and incantations and in one of them Hecate is addressed in a prayer to Selene as O night bellower lover of solitude bull-faced and bull-headed one as well as bull-eyed horned mother of gods and men okay so I, what what do we say to that? I mean, this is so, and so I've just said that Dionysus is also bull-faced, bull-headed. Um, and now we've got Selene. In a prayer to Selene, we see Hecate also as bull-faced, bull-headed, bull-eyed, and horned. So there can be really no doubt. Okay, my argument is there can be no doubt that a horned goddess and the horned god is a powerful figure or a figure of power. And that this has nothing to do with evil, with anything demonic, with any type of depravity. This is pure power uh, and it's power over life, fertility, reproduction. Um, in this case of Selene, power overnight and therefore day. So this is a kind of fundamental power that I think has been, there's been a great attempt to remove this fundamental power from women and from some men um, in creating the only horned option for a divinity as the devil, right? There seems to be a very purposeful demotion of horned gods into demons. And so this takes me to dear goddesses. Of course, we have to cover just a bit of dear goddesses um, and a bit of the more modern horned gods. 
um, because it seems like these figures do not want to leave us. Now, dear goddesses are a bit of a complicated and more modern representation. Uh, here I have a few horned um, images, but my favorite one of these is the Marvel one where Hell, who in Marvel, sorry, I haven't seen that movie in a long time, who in Marvel is the sister, is, is represented as the sister of Loki and Thor. Um, one of my favorite things though, even though I did not like that character and I was not a great fan of that film, um, but one of my favorite things is the horns on her head because they represent they represent in some ways deer culture because they kind of look like antlers. In other ways, they have this very Christian demotic interpretation because hell, of course, in Norse mythology um, does not have this particular antler shaped horns on her head um, in any depictions. Um, but I just find her such a symbol of such a statement of the way we think of powerful women today. And of course we think of them as evil, <laughs> you know, the same exact thing as um, the horn, supposedly horned goddess in New York city, the, the gold uh, exhibition. It's, there is this automatic association that women who are powerful are also evil and in this case horned. So I was really taken back with, and the horns keep growing in and out of her head, which is kind of cool in the movie. But um, again, like it's a kind of brainwashing. It's definitely an indoctrination, a repeated message that a horned person is an evil person. And a horned woman, especially as an evil woman. And so where does that leave deer goddesses? Now, deer goddesses have been part of mythology for different cultures around the world and for different, for example, incarnation deities, um, heroic quests, but, a, but especially magical disguise or enchantments. So I would say that deer have always symbolized the other world or the the supernatural world, the world outside of deer tend to stand in between two worlds, especially around like fairy tales and the fairy realm. Deer for some reason have been the animal. I think that there is, I think that deer straddle that idea between um, a peaceful animal, but also a powerful animal. Because I'm trying to think, you know, as far as the fairy realm and the Celts and the European tribes, they had, you know, they only had so many animals to really pick from. And so you've got the bear, who's a very significant character. You've got the wolf, who's a very significant character. Um, you've got owls, you've got, you know, foxes, you've got other animals. Um, but the deer, particularly the red deer, have always been seen as a soft, powerful figure. Um, and I think that that's really what makes it like I'm even remembering when I was a kid watching Bambi and seeing Bambi's dad. You know, Bambi's dad was an animal that was 
powerful and almost dangerous. And yet, you know, deer are herbivores. So I think that's what makes them magical. Um, there really is no explanation to why the deer, other than sort of the explanation <clears throat> I'm kind of going over with you. Um, but very few texts, if any, really go, <clears throat> we picked the deer because of ABC. I think the deer seems to be unconsciously in our conscious as a magical figure. And so for the Celts, especially, deer are associated with spirits or deities who transform either uh, from human to deer, from deer to human. In many Scottish and Irish tales, the deers are seen as fairy cattle. Okay, so there's that connection back to cattle, uh, historically speaking. Uh, they are herded or milked uh, by otherworldly women or by the Sith, who are the fairy um, supernatural beings. Uh, for this region, um, often fairies or the Sith can transform into deer. Um, the white deer, for example, is always a symbol of extreme beauty and mystery and rarity. And in fact, you even see that in um, House of the Dragon. I don't know if you guys are into House of the Dragon, but um, at some point, I can't remember which episode, uh, they're waiting for the white stag, right? And they're looking for the white stag and the white stag is, um, they're hunting the white stag, which again is really disturbing uh, because it's the symbol of beauty, but also power and rarity and all of those kinds of things. So, and slaying deer in the hunt is part of the wild hunt activity. And so deer are really embedded in cultic uh, celtic cult practice um now they are of course also embedded in other cultures uh, much of eastern european cultures and balkan cultures have deer goddesses and often actually artemis is um incorporated or appropriated uh, because she's so often associated with deer. So you see her in the Balkans, for example, as Artemis Bendis. Um, she is not horned, though, which is really interesting, or at least I haven't seen her horned. Um, but that is one of the areas that I must dig deeper for, for research. But she is associated with deer, of course, often, and especially in Northern Europe and Eastern Europe. So this association of women who wear antlers becomes embedded in culture and it is a symbol of supernatural or otherworldly power right and so it's it's a mystery um and it's sometimes a figure to be feared because you know a a dear goddess is a powerful being and the other figure that really shows up a lot particularly in um Europe in Western Europe, of course, is Sir Nunos. And so we're going to talk about in one second, but the the concept of deer goddesses or goddesses with antlers is a figure of wilderness again, a figure of the forest again, a figure of the mountains, and a figure of the other realm. So you can really see that hearkening back to Pan in some ways. Um, horn goddesses usually in this case in the Celtic case are not 
seen, uh, they, they don't have goat horns, they will have deer horns or antlers. But it's a very similar idea because this is a goddess of the wilderness, right? A goddess of the wild spaces, a goddess of the unknown spaces, and sometimes goddess of the dangerous spaces, right? You don't want to, you don't want to stumble into the fairy realm accidentally. And there are many stories of people who follow a beautiful deer or stag in the case of a white stag um, into and cross over into fairy realm, and then they're lost or they become victims of the seeds. So there, there is something mysterious, there's something powerful about dear goddesses, particularly in European lore. And so then that leads me to uh, Cernunos. And sometimes I call him the green god, uh, but he is definitely a horned god. Um, and he is often the consort of a goddess. Um, so I would say that he's probably one of the most famous figures, horned figures in Celtic, ancient Celtic, mm, ancient Celtic or Gallo-Roman religion. Um, Cernunos or Carnunos, whichever way, he is often depicted with antlers. He is often depicted sitting cross-legged. He is associated with stags or horned serpents, with dogs, and you won't be surprised, he is associated with bulls. Okay. Um, he is usually holding a bag of coins or a bag of uh, grain and a cornucopia, which is again a, um, a symbol of fertility, wealth, rejuvenation. Okay. Now, most people believe that he's a proto-Celtic god, which means that he came before the Celts, that he was already in place before the Celts. And there are so many di different depictions uh, and inscriptions that refer to him. And then because he was so popular in this area um, of what is today, Scotland, Ireland, Britain, et cetera, um, he becomes really... Um, in, incorporated into the religion of Wicca, and he becomes the cons the consort um, of witches, right? So you can imagine, okay, so let's, I'm trying to, okay, let's put this in a sort of image of, of history. So women who are accessing their spiritual selves who are in contact with their wild selves, who are working with nature, who are <clears throat> who understand naturopathy, who uh, have been part of an ancient tradition of of women's lore, let's say, and practice in the wilderness, have been long familiar with someone like Cernunos or a horned god in the wilderness or deer goddesses, okay? As Christianity takes over much of Europe and much of this area, these women begin to be called witches, which has to do with the word magic, which is also the word pharmakai, uh, which is also the word for pharmacy. So there's a lot that happens here over time where women who know things about so-called magic become witches, which then is represented as evil because they now have a relationship with a horned god or a wild god, which is associated with Cernunos or Pan, 
which then becomes associated with the devil. And now we see the connection of witches having sex with the devil or worshiping the devil. So I don't know, I went too fast for you with that, but that is sort of the way, the circular way in which witches and the devil become associated with each other and with these symbols, okay? And one of my pet peeves, I have to tell you, because I watched Sabrina the Teenage Witch or Sabrina the Witch on Netflix, which which I really enjoyed. But one of the things that is my pet peeves, and I don't know if I've said it before on this podcast, but is how much the witches are associated with the devil and how much everything is the devil and everything is the opposite. Like instead of, oh my God, oh my Satan, like it's just so ridiculous. Um when actually witches consorts are not the devil, but rather this ancient horned divinity that is frolicking in the woods and that represents nature and fertility and joy and happiness and rejuvenation and uh, and sex and sexuality, right? But you can imagine that for very repressed Christians in Europe, in the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, uh, the medieval period, which pick an age, any age in the last 1200 years, um, how frightening this might've seen to the uneducated, to the uninformed, um, that women may have had a relationship with a consort that had horns, when really this is a relationship with nature, you know, uh, whether the relationship is an antlered goddess or a horned god, the relationship is with nature, Um and if it's intimate in practice, I mean, of course, you can imagine that Christians and in intimacy become enemies over time. Uh, God forbid you enjoy your body. God forbid you enjoy sexuality. God forbid you have any sort of fantasies about horned gods or goddesses in the woods. You know, it's, it's it totally ruined any pleasure concept, right? It totally ruined any learning concept it just becomes fear 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 it becomes panic uh, no pun intended on poor pan it just becomes a political move now we haven't talked much about the witch trials of europe maybe one day we will but in a short statement i would say it's very clear the witch trials of europe are a, a an attack a political attack on independent women and so, I mean, there's more to it than just ignorance as well. There's a very purposeful misunderstanding. There's a very purposeful, purposeful manipulation of history and of imagery. And poor um, Sir Nunos, who is a very gentle um, divinity, who is often represented as a very gentle and loving divinity. In fact, I'm not sure that I've ever seen Sir Nunos in a violent uh, representation and a, a very loving to a very loving to animals, very loving to to nature, and of course very loving to um, to women and to anybody who worships nature. And this figure becomes demonized, you know, because his appearance is frightening to those who don't understand that the bull-faced or ghost-faced gods are actually benevolent gods. They're actually 
good gods, you know, gods that bring fertility and power. There are numerous representations of Sir Nuno, thousands and thousands. Sometimes he's portrayed as a stag. Sometimes he's associated with the ram-horned serpent, which we can actually spend a lot of time on the ram-horned serpent as well. But the images tend to be, and he's often referred to as the Lord of Animals, the images tend to be, or the Lord of Wild Things, but he is a peaceful God of nature and fruitfulness, right? He is the God that's actually coming up soon in the spring, um, who brings fruitfulness, who brings life back. Um, you know, he's always surrounded by animals. Um, he is a, a mediator between opposites, right? Um, there's a list. I have some examples here. For example, there's a petroglyph in Val Camonica, okay, in Gaul of Sir Nuno's. Um, the antlered human figure in this area could be traced back as far back as 7th century BCE. So again, almost 3,000 years ago. Uh, there are two goddesses with antlers that appear at Besancon and Claremont Ferrand in France. Um, there is an antler god that appears on a relief in Britain, in Serenstister, sorry, sorry, Brits, my apology, Serenster, whatever, in Britain, uh, that is dating, dated back to Roman times. Uh, there's a coin in Petersfield in Hampshire that was found with a an antler god. There's an antler child on a relief uh, in the Ven Vendouvres. I mean, there's, there's so much um, Celtic subject matter and pre-proto-Celtic subject matter in which the horned god and an antlered goddess are a part of, that it is without a doubt that this was a wilderness nature divinity. It was a benevolent divinity. It was always a divinity that stands between worlds. All of those combinations are um, good and positive divinities. And the very fact that they are now called demonic I don't know, it irks me in the highest way, <laughs> you know? So, last but not least, we come to the Horned Goddess in New York City. Yeah, the Horned Goddess in New York City and the um, the exhibition that really started it all, right? So, I was going to read you a little bit of what uh, Shah Shahzia Sikander says about the sculpture that she's created. Um, she really has a purpose, right? And much of her purpose has to do with women's rights, especially around abortion rights, um, and of which um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, the Supreme Court justice judge, was in favor of uh, women's abortion rights and procreation rights. Um, and so lots of that gets, hmm, Lots of that, I think, gets combobulated with this fear that this figure is demonic. Yeah? So Sikander writes, she says, this luminous figure is a nod to RBG, uh, as seen in the detail of the adorning uh, collar. And Ginsburg, with Ginsburg's death and the reversal of Roe, there was a setback to women's constitutional progress. Okay. Now there are there are three different 
versions of the same figure, just slightly different. Um, the very first one is uh, stands in uh, the middle of Madison Square Park, and she's like larger than life. I would say she's about two stories tall. And so she's gold figure, the same with the hair that's kind of curled into a ram um, horn. It reminds me very much of Zeus Amon. And um, like I said, her hands are kind of not, I wouldn't, I don't know if they're tentacly. People have used the word tentacle. I would like to use the word vines and her feet are like that. And I really think that represents the interconnectedness. Uh, when we were standing there, the the one in Madison Square Park is also wearing a, a, a skirt, kind of a skirt, and it's got sort of this, this color on it that's really beautiful. And you could see her feet, her feet are kind of dangling above the earth, but they're, um, they're tentacly or vines. And so someone had said, you know, it bothers me that she doesn't have legs. And I thought, yeah, but the, the point of her is that her body is an inter, it's a, it's a body that plugs in right? So the, a body that plugs into the earth and a body that plugs into society. So I, you know, that's really the imagery there is that um, she has the ability to plug in or unplug. She, it's almost like her body is rooted and unrooted. I mean, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful commentary on women's bodies in a way, so I mean, it, it can be interpreted in so many ways, uh, in the way that we are plugged into each other, in a way that we are interconnected with each other, in a way that we dive deep into the earth, that our roots, right? Like when you meditate, one of the things that people say is, you know, find your root into the earth or root into the earth. And I think this figure very much echoes the idea that this figure roots into into the earth or roots into society, right? Um, Sikander has also said that the sculpture, especially the one on top of the courthouse, is part of an urgent and necessary cultural reckoning, especially in cities like New York that are seen as traditional representations of power in public spaces. Um, she says, the female body has a face with its hair braided into spiraling horns, the horns mimic the movement of the arms and are there as a symbol of the figure's sovereignty sovereignty, and its autonomy, right? Um, she is a fierce woman and a form of resistance in a space that has historically been dominated by patriarchal representation. So that's so that so there are these three figures. So the one figure that is in the middle of uh, the park, stands in the skirt. And then you can use your Snapchat. Uh, I didn't have Snapchat, but my daughter had Snapchat. And um, aim it, I guess, towards the figure. And, and this filter becomes, um, and you can see this picture, although I have pictures on my social media too, if you want to see them. Um, and this The figure actually kind of moves around the park, but my daughter got it that she kind of sits on my shoulder or sits on my hand, which is super cute. So you just kind of play with the figure. So this is the uh, the virtual reality figure. Uh, which is really cool. And there's a song and a kind of video that goes along with it. It's really beautiful, right? And then there's the figure, I think that has caused the most trouble, which is the one that is on top of the appellate court. Um, and she sits on a lotus flower. So standing on a lotus flower is usually a sign in Buddhism uh, of, um, and in Shinto and other, and other traditions, of wisdom, of enlightenment, of rebirth. 
and she stands. Um, and again, if you want to see the picture, you can, it's on my social media. Um, she, so there's on top of the roof of the courthouse, there are these three guys, white stoned, maybe marble. I'm not sure they're high, high up three dudes. Yeah. And then you see her as the fourth and she's gold. And you could see the base of her statue, which is a red lotus flower. It's absolutely stunning. Uh, I would have loved to see it, to see the statue more on eye level. So go up in the building in one of the apartments and or, or offices and, and see it as a, on, on an eye level. But even from below, you can see the figure is um, this beautiful gold figure on this lotus flower. And so it represents um, this... Um, a figure of enlightenment, really, in the sense that it's a bit of a, it's actually a bit of a revolutionary piece, because in the appellate court is where women's rights are taken away. And, you know, that just happened a couple of years ago, and, and uh, with Roe being overturned. And this is really a statement that number one, women are not included in the decision making. Of course, in support of RBG, who was um, pro-choice, and in this idea that the only figure on top of the courthouse that has any wisdom is this goddess figure, yeah. And so Sikander actually titled this exhibition "Now," right, um, and. You know, she says it's not supposed to alienate anybody or do anything, but it is supposed to feminize this old patriarchal, let's say, powerful building in this case, right? Um, it it is meant to shake up, to stand out, to be seen. That's why she's gold colored, standing on this red leaf. She is meant to challenge the power of men. And so you're not surprised that I began this episode with tweets of everybody calling it satanic goat-like horns. You're not surprised that everybody is associating her with Medusa as though Medusa is a bad symbol for women. I mean, are we still there? It's 2023. Um, and again, I've done an episode on Medusa. So if you're listening to this and you're like, I don't know what you're talking about, Carla, please go listen to that episode it's called medusa misunderstood um yeah medusa is not an evil figure she's not a bad figure she's not a demonic figure she's not a she's definitely not a satanic figure it was satan wasn't even a thing back in the day uh when the greeks were creating their stories so this backlash against this figure is really i mean it was predictable and it's really a reflection of the backlash against the power of women, particularly around their bodies. And I think that that's why this statue is um, has a body shaped of a woman, but is very much um, mixed in with the vines or tentacles of her hands and her hair um, horned in this, in this symbol of power that goes all the way back to Amunra, in Egypt, right? A symbol of power, a symbol of knowledge, 
um, a symbol of revolution, um, wisdom, knowledge of the unknown, right? And all of the ways in which women have held secret knowledge. Um, and I love that it's tied to her hair because again, hair has always been or has been for the last few thousand years blamed for all the weaknesses of men, right? Like, uh, you know, Samson literally loses his hair and uh, and he loses his power, right, um, in, in the Bible. And so this association with hair, especially for women associated with beauty, all these kinds of things, this statue is so powerful. I really hope that you can see all the ways in which this statue speaks on so many levels and you can maybe see why I wanted to see her so badly live because I really wanted to see whether or not um, this goddess is, or this figure is really demonic, you know? I mean, I didn't think so, clearly not, but because every anytime somebody starts talking about Satan, I roll my eyes like, oh my God, this person hasn't done their homework. So I want to reiterate that there is no such thing as Satan, that it is totally fan fiction, that, and I'm not saying that there's no such thing as evil in the world, Um because clearly that is, but the only thing that's evil in the world, my friends, is men. And I mean that both literally and figuratively. It's humans and it's men. Um, and so that, yes, there is evil in the world. And yes, there are a lot of depraved and disgusting and tragic and torturous and violent things that happen in the world. But that comes from men. And Satan's really the scapegoat pun not intended, but still a good pun. Uh, Satan really has become the scapegoat of that in the sense that men go, oh, well, it's Satan that tempted me or the devil tempted me or whatever to do this. Because I think there is an inability for us to, or for some people to look within themselves and see why, why are you so evil and depraved and greedy and all these things. And so, yeah, I get a little irked. Um, I don't usually get involved when people start talking about Satan or the devil, but I do get involved when that starts to be applied to women <laughs> and uh, when newspapers and, you know, influential people begin to call a statue of women's power satanic. I mean, you're all not surprised. Of course not. But the fact that we're not surprised and we just kind of go, oh, yeah, that's, you know, the same old blaming women for everything. I, I guess a part of me feels a bit like, okay, like what, what are we going to do? Like how long, how long do we do this? You know, it's been 2000 years. Um, like how long before we begin to use our voices to say, Hey, you're an ignorant buffoon. <laughs> Let me educate you a little because I cannot just stand here and watch you spew your ignorant and literally ignorant lack of knowledge all over the place and for generations to come. So I took this particular episode a bit personally. It is part of my passion um, 
goddesses that are deemed evil or wrathful or vengeful or demonic are part of my research. And I really enjoy sort of debunking those theories about them. And so the minute I saw this, you can imagine that I thought, oh, no, I have to go. I have to see it for myself just to make sure I have to kind of read about this um, artist and what they intended. And then I have to do a little bit of my own work aside from my own work. You know, I've been living in the ancient world for a long time. And so there's there's a lot of work that you kind of already know that it's so much part of your <clears throat> consciousness and your and your knowledge. But I just want to, you know, double check a few figures get a little bit of dates and times and places for a few figures and, and and connect them to each other. But I think it's very, very clear that horn divinities have always been divinities of power and goodwill, power and success, power and wealth, power and fertility and fortitude, and never, ever, ever figures of anything to do with evil, or devilry, or, you know, Christian panicked imagination of the unknown. Um, and so I hope that you've seen that. <laughs> I hope it hasn't been too preachy. Um, and I hope that you've enjoyed learning about this um, exhibition and also the horned gods and goddesses. Uh, this, uh, the statues are up until June um, at the and uh, Madison Square Park in New York City. Um, I would love to know what happens to them next. Oh my goodness. I would love to have the funds to purchase. I don't know. I don't know if uh, Shezia Sikander has any intention of selling these pieces, but the statues, oh my goodness. What a dream it would be to have one of these statues um, in my garden um, or in my home. Mm. So if anyone knows Shahi, it's Jazia Sikander. <laughs> and if she feels in a um, charitable mood and wants to make this academic's life, literally for life, um, these statues are stunning. I recommend that you go look at them yourself if you can. And um, if not, come check them out on social media. And um, thank you so much for joining me. And thank you so much for supporting the Goddess Project podcast. Um, this season is going to be fantastic. As you know, I'm also adding the Goddess Talks, which are uh, different talks and discussions with experts in the field that I really admire and that I hope that you will enjoy listening to. And we have a whole season full of gods and goddesses and mysteries and fun times uh, coming up for you uh, over you know the coming months. And so thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, please feel free to share, to leave comments, to like, to subscribe, of course, um, and to let me know if there's anything else that you'd like to listen to or hear, or if you have any suggestions for anything else that you might see as a great and fantastic topic. So thank you so much. Have the best weekend. Um, and I'll see you again soon. Hades is often depicted as a sort of white-haired elf. Actually, that's kind of what he reminds me of. And now, of course, the Targaryen. One of the four demons belonging to the vampire or incubi class. So this is the first time that we see the, the Lilith name, uh, even though it is associated with